Parity is a company that builds blockchain infrastructure. Parity has built several open source projects and works with enterprises to put blockchain technology into production. Gavin Wood is the founder of Parity, and he joins the show to talk about the state of blockchain technology and what his company is currently focused on. Four years ago, Gavin helped start the Ethereum project, so he has lots of context on decentralized technology. Gavin envisions a world with many different blockchains for many different use cases. These blockchains will interact with each other to enable trusted relationships between parties. One project that Parity has created is Substrate, a technology that allows developers to quickly stand up a blockchain with the right privacy level. Another project is Polkadot, which allows blockchains to connect and interoperate with each other. Gavin and I discussed why the world needs a variety of blockchains, and whether all of these different blockchains should need their own cryptocurrency. Gavin described the use case of blockchains for mediating supply chain trust. And we also talked about the technologies that are used to build these projects, including WebAssembly and Rust. Gavin Wood, you are the co-founder of Ethereum and the founder of Parity Technologies. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's 2018. You helped start Ethereum about four years ago. When you look back at your vision for Ethereum in the earlier days, how does that compare to the vision you have today? In the very early days, I think I had slightly grander uh, ideas about, about what would happen you know, one to two years into the project, I thought there'd be a lot more, a lot more progress on some of the other components. Um, I'm pretty happy with what we got out within the sort of time that that I was involved in the project. But yeah, I, I, I you know, we had this whole idea of like Web 3.0 with this idea of there being not just Ethereum, but also a, a really sort of a great browsing experience swarm and whisper in order to allow you to um, publish content and send messages between nodes peer-to-peer in a sort of privacy-preserving way. And that's that's still very much a work in progress. Is it a, a question of just the the maturity of, of the technology? Because, I mean, people had, I mean, this is an analogy that people have drawn all the time, but people had visions of grocery delivery by internet in 1994 and I don't know, summoning a taxi easily. I don't know if that was as much a vision, but these things where early on the infrastructure was not there, but once the infrastructure was laid, you could get those sorts of things. So it's, you know, it's the potential is still there, right? Or or have you lost faith in the potential as well? Or is it uh, just losing faith in the time horizon? No, no, I think the potential is still very much there. Um, you know, what we started with Ethereum, this this sort of notion of, uh, trust freedom, this um, idea that you don't have to trust an intermediary. You perhaps don't even have to trust the counterparty. You know, it's it, it's still very much a theme with, as, as more and more technologies come out and more and more gets delivered. I think the sort of hype surrounding Ethereum uh, was, was sort of descriptive, <laughs> indicative, but not, you know, I don't think Ethereum 1.0 was ever going to deliver on all of the sort of visions surrounding this smart contract centered world. It was the first platform of its kind. It was essentially an MVP 
And it was always the case that, you know, over the years, there was going to be Ethereum 2 and Ethereum whatever. And there were inevitably going to be other projects that were going to also be contributing in this to this technology and to this to this vision. So I haven't sort of lost faith at all. I, I think that perhaps there could have been more progress on some of the ancillary things. I think there's uh, the ecosystem is is progressing, but perhaps at a perhaps not as fast as as some people would have liked. But uh, nonetheless, we're, we're working towards that, that that goal still. In the last four years, it seems like things have really changed on the internet. Even though it's just four years, it seems like things have gotten a little more dystopian. It's become clearer why centralization is problematic uh, on the internet. I mean, I think four years ago, people could easily say, okay, look, centralization of the financial system is dangerous and scary and kind of opaque in many ways. But I feel like four years ago, we had a little more faith in the centralization of social networks or your Gmail or your search engine. Obviously, there were people who were, you know, sounding the alarm bells back then and, and much and much much longer ago, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, people talking about the, the dangers of centralization. But today, it's just become so clear, the dangers of centralization. You've, you've written about some ways that the internet is broken in your eyes. And it's certainly not going to get less. As long as we have these centralized systems, we're only going to see more and more problems like this. What are the ways in which the current internet is broken most acutely? If we're talking about like uh, sort of detailed instances, I think the main issues with specifically the internet being broken, I guess over time, this is this, certainly two to three years ago before the sort of wave of HTTPS that sort of that encrypted an awful lot more of the traffic on the internet. But certainly like pre-Snowden revelations, by far the most acute thing was simply that most traffic on the internet, certainly in the Western world, was being routed by sort of three, four, five uh, major nexuses. And it was fairly trivial for agencies that perhaps didn't have the uh, the legal backing, but certainly in an opaque fashion, uh, we're monitoring things. I think that we don't really have the legal basis, the sort of fundamental understanding within the political world in order to properly police um, these sort of aspects of the security services, even in the West. And certainly when you move further afield, then with governments that have even even sort of less oversight, then, then this becomes much more of a problem. I think today, as I said, there's that still extends to metadata. So you can still quite easily um, see uh, the routing if you have access to these sort of nexuses of, of routing. Uh, you can still see who is talking to whom in a sort of in a dragnet fashion. You can collect all of this information, which I find quite uh, quite worrying. But beyond that, it's also, you know, things like advertising and, and tracking user habits, user behavior. It, it will, it's already at the point where um, face recognition is such that I can be traced. Basically, uh, certainly when I go to the UK, I can be traced as I, as I move around the country. And there's really nothing, the sort of security safeguards on my privacy are minimal. And governments, certainly the UK government, is dead set on reducing it even further. And I think eventually the time needs to come where the sort of privacy that people generally expect to have in a free society really does need to be retaken. And I don't think that 
the legal method, uh, the political method, is a, an effective way of retaking it in the near term. Right. And really puts a finer point on just the most quite basic use case of cryptocurrency, just the idea that you could have uncensorable payments and how payments are such a, a fundamental form of speech because by transferring value to somebody, you are showing that you support them in in some dimension, whether it's they're offering a product or service or they're representative of certain ideas. And the idea of being able to have uncensorable support of somebody else is fundamental to that kind of uh, freedom that you're talking about. So with that said, what are the use cases for cryptocurrencies that have been validated today? I think uncensorable payments is, is, is one that is probably on the cusp of being validated it's like sort of validated but maybe you could shed more light on what you what kinds of things you think have truly been validated at this point i think in terms of let's say social use cases we're still at a relatively early stage of experimentation i think it's pretty clear that as you said earlier society has has problems with with centralization with intermediaries often being incompetent and sometimes abusing their power, notably with uh, WikiLeaks at the time where um, a bunch of uh, diplomatic cables were released. It was, uh, and sort of, you know, WikiLeaks' founder, um, Assange, was looking for um, some support with his legal costs. And let's be clear, legal costs are something that, you know, is a, is a fair right of every citizen, you know, it's, it's in, a, in a free sort of uh, uh, law-based society we expect the, to be able to some sort of uh, a, a freedom to be able to pay lawyers to defend ourselves. It was very notable that WikiLeaks had its funding routes shut off by the major payment processes. And as an internet-based um, entity, that was, um, that was a, a big problem. You couldn't use cash. They didn't shut it off with any real basis. It was simply as a sort of high-level political favor um, for towards the, the sort of U.S. Um, um, establishment in order to uh, sort of curry curry favor and sort of let them know that they were on the side of the establishment, so to speak, so to speak, rather than in any way trying to uh, support this journalism. And uh, it was there that sort of Bitcoin crypto provided the one sort of refuge for those who did want to sort of give a bit of contribution to to the legal defense. And I think that's a fairly sort of clear case where these days it's it's a bit sort of conspiracy theorist-esque with, uh, with, with Trump and the sort of um, the alt-right um, largely in ascendance. But I think there is some, some sense of the deep state here, some sense of the sort of establishment sticking together. And the payment processes and the banks are very much part of the establishment. And it was pretty clear that they were acting in a, in a, a very biased fashion over their policy with WikiLeaks. I mean, that's a great example. The other one that comes to mind is the Alex Jones being deplatformed from all of the different media institutions. Not a fan of Alex Jones, but the idea that you could, like, I thought podcasts were the most horizontally accessible, uncensorable form of media distribution, you know, relative to YouTube, especially because it's not. Uh, ad support, or it's like Apple doesn't need to have an ad network because it's Apple. They sell iPhones and make pr- plenty of money that way. And yet Apple still removed Alex Jones from the podcast distribution world. Uh, and that was, 
you know, kind of a wake up call. Again, I'm not a supporter of Alex Jones. I think he's, you know, spreads lies basically, and not to get political, but it's just, it was scary to me as a media person that you just can get deplatformed by these kinds of, you know, this kind of centralization. And, you know, I think if, if we can prove that uncensorable transfer of value is possible, at some point we can have uncensorable transfer of higher bandwidth information formats, which I think we're we're going to get into, you know, the the issues of uh, scalability. Before we get into the, the kind of technical lower level details, what are the use cases for cryptocurrency related technologies, blockchain technologies? What are the things that you think we're going to see come to market first or, or come to market in the next five or 10 years? I'd say that the most sort of pressing uh, use cases are things where we can't reasonably set up entities that all parties of a system can trust uh, in order to um, you know get some information from between ends of economic conduits. So a, a classic example of that is supply chain pharmaceuticals, for example, um, where it's very difficult to uh, you know if you're buying some I don't know aspirin or, or, or whatever it'll be in uh, perhaps not aspirin maybe some I don't know uh, anti-AIDS uh, medication in um, in Eastern Europe. It can be very difficult to know that it's the the sort of real thing and not some counterfeit and the reason that it's it is so so difficult to do is just because the supply chain goes between different countries different cultures and there is very little way to connect the end user with the producer in a in a in a way that is that the end user has a, a de, you know substantial degree of of ability to believe that they're they're sort of reading the truth when this thing presents itself as a genuine article in those sorts of situations this kind of trust-free technology, blockchain, you know, cryptocurrency to some degree, I think that's just one use case, but these are ways of uh, mitigating the issue of having to trust third parties in order to collate this information from different corners of the world, different jurisdictions, together in a, in a very cost-effective manner, right? Because we're essentially using computers for the intermediaries now, we can really drive down the margin to the basic sort of IT level. So I would say that sort of supply chain is, is a big one. Um, things that, you know, so here in Germany where I live now, there's buying a house is, is an incredible uh, ordeal. In terms of the taxes involved, uh, the sort of stamp duty, the, the sort of um, transaction tax, it's very substantial. And this isn't a value added tax. This is simply a sort of, it's not actually technically a tax, but a fee for the notary runs to about one and a half percent of the total transaction value. And this is enforced by by the German government. And it's basically making a bunch of, of people whose main job is to sit on a chair and like read out a, a contract a few pages um, for about one hour, one and a half hours and watch a couple of people sign. It, it's kind of crazy. And now, okay, you know, 100, 150 years ago, this was, this was pretty important because, you know, you needed to make sure these transactions were done by a sort of an agent of the state. Um, otherwise, um, there would be an awful lot of, of, of fraud and, and theft and whatnot. But these days, we really do have the technology in order to, um, to remove this very, <laughs> very clear example of a middleman. And I, I can see in the, States that allow it, which are probably the ones that are poorer, simply because the rich states can afford a little bit more flab in terms of their processes and legals. But the states that are poorer, where the margins are, are much less and where the difference between a one and a half percent cut on the value of the, the house that you're buying um, is, the, is the difference between, you know, being able to afford another child or not. Um, it will be a huge advantage to use this technology. 
okay, so the idea of a supply chain monitoring system. So there's an anti-AIDS drug, and there's all these steps in the supply chain between the producer of the drug and the person who consumes the drug. You've got purchasing middlemen, you've got distributors, you've got distributors of distributors, you've got warehousing. Let's say there's eight points of selling and reselling that occur in the value chain between the AIDS drug company and the end user. People who might want to counter-argue the idea that you need a blockchain for this would say, okay, so you set up a Rails app, uh, you put a Postgres database behind the Rails app, uh, you give different permission levels to the different types of users, the you know the person who's making the drug, the person who's producing the drug, the person who's distributing the drug, the person who's manufacturing the drug, and so on. All of these people can log in. They can somehow sign and verify their phase in the process. Maybe there's some kind of hashing and verification system they can go through at each point in the supply chain. And then at the end of it, the user who who wants to consume the drug, they can log in and they can see the entire supply chain and the verification process. Why do you need a blockchain for this use case? So, you know, you're absolutely right. Technically speaking, that would do a perfectly good job. The issue isn't one of, of, of technicals. The issue is one of socials. You would have to find someone that would do all of that and do it for free or for an extremely low cost, like at cost, and would have to be utterly trustworthy um, so that all of the people in the system, particularly the end users, of course, um, are uh, guaranteed that this will um, that no information has been tampered either through corruption or through coercion or through incompetence and to combine that with low cost is essentially impossible without the blockchain right so in this case you would want to have some kind of checkpointing system a- along the way to have people be verified or how how are you removing trust from that system or is do you have these these eight people like the eight people that are in the loop you know you the customer the manufacturer the producer are all of these people kind of watching each other in just a consortium blockchain or is there some means by which this supply chain dedicated blockchain would be checkpointing with for example the bitcoin blockchain in order to ensure tamper proof So the Bitcoin blockchain, because it's not sort of Turing complete, it's not a smart contract blockchain, it's not in any way, uh, well, okay, it's slightly programmable, but not not nearly programmable enough for this use case, couldn't really do anything beyond indeed sort of checkpointing. So you can ensure that the state of the chain can't be reverted, that the transactions, once they sort of make their way onto it, can't can't be undone. But that's not really sufficient for this use case, certainly not for, um, for, for, for validating these kinds of transfer transactions uh, that could actually be fairly complex in how sort of things come in and go out. You might have mergers and forks and all the rest of it. Um, So the sorts of, the way it would probably work, it would either be a consortium indeed, uh, where the eight players would, would each watch each other. Eight is still fairly centralized, but we're doing a lot better than one that isn't really paid. An even better way would be to use an open and transparent platform whereby each of the basically end users, people that sort of 
um, have their own uh, sort of taking this medication would be able to download all of the transactions that sort of prove and this isn't a 100% proof right it's very difficult to prove anything 100% but this is something that's 80% 90% of the way there from what we have now um, prove in air quotes that the things that they have that, that are labeled you know the right drugs are actually indeed the things that came from the stated manufacturer interesting Let's just go a little deeper on on this example. So at each of these points in the supply chain, what are the different players doing to sign off on the validity or the the trustworthiness of their handoff? So for example, I produce the drug, I hand it off to a warehousing system or a warehousing company, and then the warehousing company is going to hand it off to, I don't know, FedEx or somebody who's going to ship the drug. The warehousing company could swap out that drug for a counterfeit version of the drug. What is the warehousing company doing to sign and verify the safety, the trustworthiness of their package that they are going to then hand off to FedEx? How are they interacting with that consortium blockchain? Um, so there's a few a few ways. So the, the very naive way that's a good first step would simply be that whenever any package left the original manufacturer, it would leave the original manufacturer with a sort of a hash, some sort of cryptographic document, almost documentation that's sort of one of a kind. That hash would have been placed on the blockchain. So there's only a, a, a specific number of these hashes. They would uh, represent a consignment of this medication. Now, when it arrived at the distribution warehouse, maybe via courier, whatever it will be, then that hash would be the way that the distribution warehouse would be able to say, yes, I received whatever, 100 kilos of this medication. They would sort of scan this hash. This hash wouldn't be previously sort of unknown to any others. It might be covered before. Maybe they have to sort of scratch something off or, or whatever else. But in essence, they would take ownership by claiming this hash on the blockchain. So the blockchain would record that this particular consignment, which we know is valid because it was this hash was signed um, on the blockchain by the original producer, would now be sort of co-signed by this warehouse uh, that would essentially be proving, firstly, that the producer no longer has uh, uh, ownership or, or stewardship of this medication. Secondly, that the warehouse indeed does. Um, and thirdly, that, you know, it's this medication and only this medication. Like it's not that they've got like this hundred kilos of medication has, has turned into a, a ton of this medication. So they can't sort of pretend to have more than they really have because we always check all the way back to the producer to see which consignments they actually ever produced and if we ever end up with a consignment that has that didn't come from the producer that's a different hash then we know that we've got some something's wrong right similarly because the blockchain is always tracking the ownership of the consignment as it goes from warehouse to warehouse to distributor we know that at most one counterfeit could have been swapped in. So we don't know for sure that the thing that we have is definitely the thing that entered the warehouse at this point, but we do at least know that if they swapped it out, their business model is pretty rubbish because all they can do is is, is swap out one counterfeit for the thing that we believe is true. They can't do that very many times because as soon as, of course, the final uh, receiver sort of scans their hash, if someone else has already scanned the same hash, or if it's not the hash that came from the original producer, then we know that this is not good medication. So this hash would have to be on, if they printed it on the, like if it's pills, 
you would need to print it on every individual pill because otherwise you could you I guess you could swap out the containers. So if you printed it on the container, the warehousing person could potentially just swap the container and still have the pills. But if you printed the hash on every single pill, then you could have some verification. You know, this this wouldn't be something that goes on every pill. Essentially, what you're doing is you're saying, well, assuming every every eventual consumer, and let's assume it's printed on each box, so each each container of pills, because you know you don't need to print it on every pill. Like people don't check that each individual pill is is something. You know, the consumer eventually gets a box of these things, so you might print it on the box. I think that would be that would be fairly reasonable, and the eventual pill consumer would simply scan their QR code that has this hash on. Um, onto the um, sort of online and check that this QR code, and they could do this even at the point of purchasing the pills with their smartphone. And it would just check that the pharmacy that they're buying it from did indeed take consignment of these specific, this specific box of pills from wherever that it doesn't, that's irrelevant that they took the, the main thing is that they did indeed take ownership and that no one else has so far scanned this hash. And if those two things are true, and if the producer did actually produce this box of pills with this hash. So those three things, if those three things are true, then we know that if this box of pills is a, it has been swapped out, then it's very unlikely that anyone's making any money by swapping these this particular box of pills out. Like in principle, someone could have switched the pills from inside the box, but then there's no real sort of, why would they do that? Like they can then, they now have sort of, bunch of pills that they can't actually sell because they can't prove that these are the pills that they are because they've just put the hash on another box of pills. So unless they can kind of flog these pills like for for a discount on the black market, you know, and sort of try and say, well, you know, these pills are legit, honest, (laughs) but even though we don't have a hash to prove it, it it doesn't really make any sense. They might get, I don't know, 5% of the actual price. So I don't think it would be worth their um, economic effort in doing So not to uh, spend like all the time on supply chain applications of blockchains, but can you just, just to to put a finer point on this, explain why the model of just using a Rails app with a Postgres database and like sharing that hash or writing that hash to the database and everybody like along the supply chain just checkpoints that yes, this box still has the proper hash on it. Uh, and then maybe you have all the well. I guess if you have everything that goes on in the operating system, you know, you could you could write a, write it to a log. But then you'd be trusting the operating system that be centralized to some extent. Okay, why do you need a blockchain for this this use case? Essentially, because you're dealing with a fair amount of data. You're dealing with a number of different players. You're dealing in terms of relatively high stakes. So whoever is operating your server, this ha- this is a server, right? So there's there's going to be a single operator. Um, they're the guys that run the Rails sort of database. They're the ones that have the PostgreSQL. They are, they're the ones that have the admin account. Um, they have to basically say no when the Eastern European mafia comes knocking on their door to say, come on, just put an extra 10x of these pills in because we stand to make $10 million and we won't break your kneecaps. They also have to be sufficiently competent that hackers that, again, you know, let's say East European mafia, hire a couple of fairly decent um, hackers to go into the Rails application with a zero day, add an extra like 10x of these uh, of this consignment. And they also have to do it for basically free. So these three things are what blockchain achieves that you will not be able to achieve all three of them with a standard centralized service provider. And so you would not necessarily need a cryptocurrency for this kind of model. So you could probably have 
let's say you wanted to have some degree of resiliency for this supply chain blockchain, but you don't necessarily need the global resiliency of a global reserve currency like Bitcoin is trying to be. Maybe you could just have a thousand people validating the supply chain blockchain. Is that your vision for how the validation process and the blockchain process would work? Yeah, I mean, actually, at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter so much how many people validate um, as long as the barrier to entry of validation is sufficiently low. So uh, it might be that you actually only have 10 or 20 validators, but as long as it's possible for anyone to come along and get the whole of the data and check all of the transactions and make sure that everything actually does add up, then it's basically fine. Now, actually, if you look at the number of full nodes on the Bitcoin network, so the nodes that actually compute every single transaction that's ever happened on Bitcoin, there really aren't all that many of them. I think it's, you know, I might be getting this mixed now, but I think it's in the four, if five, if not four figures. It's certainly not, you know, sort of crazy supercomputer sort of numbers. Um, the supercomputer numbers, as far as Bitcoin's concerned, only reach as far as the hashing algorithm and how many people are trying to solve this pointlessly hard puzzle. So why don't you need a cryptocurrency for each of these enterprise or consortium blockchains that we might need to create? Uh, you know, we, 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 let's say we want micro-networks of trust around supply chain and and a variety of other things. Maybe our Maybe we want a blockchain around our local weather reporting so that the weather reporting cannot be politicized. Do we need a cryptocurrency in all of these different domains, or can we achieve a trustless information-sharing network without a cryptocurrency? So cryptocurrencies generally fulfill one, two significant uh, requirements. The first is requirements of these systems. The first is that they they provide a basis for the security apparatus of the network. So they, in Bitcoin's case, miners get paid in the, in the cryptocurrency itself in order to ensure that it's very difficult to roll back any transactions on the network. If Bitcoin were not worth very much, and there are plenty of cryptocurrencies where their cryptocurrency isn't worth very much, and therefore the network is much easier to roll back. If, if that were the case with Bitcoin, then it wouldn't be able to hold nearly as much value as it could. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing going on there. The other reason that, that these networks, these blockchains tend to have a cryptocurrency behind them is one of anti-spam prevention. Essentially, if your transactions, if you don't have a cryptocurrency, it's very difficult to prevent the general public sort of attackers and spammers within the general public from just filling up your blockchain with useless transactions. So you attach a cost to processing these transactions and that cost is sort of managed and administered as a cryptocurrency payment. Um, and that's what Bitcoin did. And that's, you know, how Ethereum works as well. And there's a bunch of others. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know of any public blockchain that doesn't use this mechanism. Private blockchains and consortium blockchains are a little different. They don't need this because they have different economic motivations or different you know, different economic motivators to make sure that firstly, there is no spam. And secondly, that the network is sufficiently secure, that its, its maintainers don't just sort of roll back blocks when something happens that they don't like or you know, in, in an attack circumstance. And they do that basically by legal methods or by them all being within the same company and just sort of 
telling them, look, you know, this is what we want to happen. So, you know, if you're going to do your job, then make sure you do it this way. And that's fine. I kind of, I like, so in my, in my sort of vision of, of how things are going to sort of pan out, I don't think we're going to see blockchains always have cryptocurrencies attached to them. I think we will start to see blockchains that um, piggyback on other cryptocurrency blockchains. And the project that I'm working on at the moment, Polkadot, is, is one way of, of achieving this. But that said, tokenization is a really easy way of, of not just funding a project, but also the sort of continuation of, of the sort of payments and services within that project um, to, uh, to make it so that sort of payment processing and, 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 and this notion of an economy forming within the project of users and providers all being part of the same market it is uh, very useful to actually achieve that. So I don't think it's going away either, but I think we'll eventually um, find a sort of middle ground. I feel like I'm in the minority thinking that consortium blockchains, private blockchains, enterprise blockchains, the things along the gradient between a enterprise's like Postgres database and the Bitcoin blockchain, I think I'm quite interested in these. I find them potentially quite useful. I, I think I know that there's a lot of uh, there's kind of a lot of a rejection of the idea of enterprise blockchains. I don't know. I think I think they could be quite useful to have these i mean you have in traditional computing you have granularities of permissions and i don't know why the same wouldn't be the case with trust-based systems yeah i guess i generally agree i think that we need a little while longer for many of the cios many of these sort of it leaders of enterprise to really get to grips with what uh, this technology can provide Moreover, I think there's a little bit of a paradigm shift required. One of the projects I'm involved with, the EWF, Energy Web Foundation, is a consortium blockchain or based around a consortium blockchain within the energy sector. And inevitably is going to take a while before more traditional businesses and business models that operate on traditional business models come to grips with how sort of living in a trust-free world, how this trust-free technology can actually sort of help them you know the i think the original wave the sort of when we saw blockchain based pocs come out in the enterprise about two three years ago focused a little too much on reducing trust from inside a single business and not enough on trying to cut down into enterprise transaction fees and i think that's really where this can help this technology can help i don't think i think it's it may well optimize certain processes within a business it may well help you police certain processes within a business but i think it's real value add for traditional businesses and help is in helping them interact with each other with much less cost much finer granularity and in a much more adaptive fashion at the moment if businesses want to interact they pretty much in any circumstance have to go via lawyers and going via lawyers if you i don't know if you've ever done that but it's a very expensive and time-consuming task um, often that doesn't have a, a very adequate end and at least with blockchain it, it costs you very little um, to find out whether or not you know some particular sort of ongoing deal or transaction is going to work um, between you and um, and whoever it is that you want to deal with you started Parity, and Parity has a widely deployed Ethereum client. I would like to talk some about the Ethereum client, but I, I, I'm hoping to spend. I know I've, I've spent so much time talking about supply chain. I think we should probably focus on Polkadot and Substrate. So, Polkadot is a protocol that you created around blockchain interoperability. So, the idea 
is to allow different blockchains to interoperate with each other and be compatible. Substrate is a system for launching blockchains quickly and uh, effectively. What is your vision? What are you trying to build with this set of technologies? What kinds of applications are you trying to enable with you know, improving blockchain interoperability and allowing people to stand up blockchains on their own quickly? I think if we're talking grand strategy, I, I guess I'm coming from the idea that when we started Ethereum, for me, Ethereum was always about building a turbocharging and innovation commons. It, the idea was that we were going to put this commons down, lay down this this sort of very public owned piece of IT. And the idea was that people could come to it, coders by and large, but you know, uh, in principle, uh, businesses and whatnot could come to it and they could lay down their own economically independent, economically autonomous um, processes, essentially laying down business models, but doing so live. It's like you can just imagine a business model, you can code it up and then you can lay it into this blockchain and it will just work and it will interact with all of the other um, uh, 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 smart contracts, as we call them, but sort of business models there. And this was kind of crazy. It was like, wow, you know, people are going to do this and that. And it's going to be amazing. And to some degree, we saw some of that. We've seen some pretty interesting applications, pretty off the off the wall applications. Uh, but it's following in that vein. And it's basically saying, I don't think that the smart contract model is the sort of compute model behind Ethereum is everything. I think that there are some applications of this technology where it makes more sense to have your own distinct blockchain. And that might be just as, a, as an optimization, as an efficiency thing. But it could also be that it just fits better within a, a different sort of consensus method. It may just be that it's got different parameters. Um, maybe it's got faster block times or slower block times or whatever else. It's got different crypto, needs different database backends. There are all sorts of, of, of ways that you can optimize for certain use cases. And the smart contract is a very sort of blunt knife in order to do that. Whereas if we allow teams to experiment with their own blockchains, it becomes that much easier for them to hit the right solution. And so what I wanted to do was not just create a platform for making and deploying these chains, but also a platform to actually connect them all together so that they get the same sort of benefits that we had with smart contracts in Ethereum so they can be combined and composed and generally create a a sort of large uh, ecosystem of otherwise independent economic algorithms. I think that's great because you contrast it with the centralized world. You take something like WordPress. You could build whatever you want to on WordPress. You could, but Ruby on Rails is a little bit better if you want to build something like Airbnb. Like You could build Airbnb on WordPress. It wouldn't be as great an experience, but you could do it. Similarly, you know, on Ethereum, you can build whatever you want in the form of dApps. You can build, you know, systems of smart contracts that have robust sets of functionality, and people have done that. Uh, you can launch your own token-based economy on top of Ethereum, but you're kind of offering more of a, a, a flexible, full-stack model of deploying your own infrastructure, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, this is. I always look at things as as where they sort of sit on a on a 
on the stack, on the software stack, right? So I see, you know, you've got your fixed function things like Bitcoin and they're, they're very difficult to program. Then you've got Ethereum that sort of sits below it and it's, it is programmable. It has, it's sort of notionally Turing complete. I would actually argue it's not really Turing complete because it has this gas mechanism that prevents you from, from running programs that take too long or use too much memory or all the rest of it. You know, it's, it's, it's actually quite strict in how, how long programs are allowed to run, how much resources they can take. And then at the, all the way at the bottom, there's like, just make your own chain and program everything yourself. And that takes a very long time to make a secure, well-supported blockchain with all of the stuff that goes around it, block explorers and uh, telemetry services and UIs. It, it really does take a, a, a very long time, a lot of effort to, to get all stable and secure. And so what we're doing is saying, well, let's try and find a middle ground with Substrate. Let's say, well, you can build your own chain if you want. We'll give you all of the sort of standard components, RPCs and databases, all that sort of thing. And you just have to fill out the blanks, the, the state transition function, the bit that sort of processes the transactions and decides what to do. But we'll also provide you with a bunch of modules so that, you know, you can build it from a bunch of basically sort of components that you can plug together. And this is the, the, the sort of development platform that I want when I'm building Polkadot. And it's like, right, well, first I'm going to build the development platform that I want, and then I'm going to build Polkadot on top of it. So I figured, well, may as well, you know, make it free and give it out to everyone else because, you know, parity is pretty much all about open source. In Across all your projects, Polkadot and Substrate and the Ethereum client, you use WebAssembly. How is WebAssembly useful to blockchain development? One of the questions I got asked back in 2014 when I was first sort of doing an Ethereum meetup, I think it was actually the first proper Ethereum meetup I spoke at. It was in, um, it was in Silicon Valley. I got a guy ask me at the end of the meetup, what happens What, what about when you want to upgrade the blockchain? At the time, I thought, well, you know, people will just upgrade the software and eventually it will, it will fork. And he said, well, isn't that going to be a pretty hard to organize what if some people don't want to upgrade? What if some people don't know, forget? And I kind of dismissed it at the time, but it turns out that it's actually a pretty important point. Blockchains aren't upgradable. And I mean, these days, pretty much any consumer product um, that can possibly upgrade does upgrade. I mean, I've got a pair of headphones on. They upgraded the other day. I got like an addition of, uh, of active noise cancelling. It's like, wow, these weren't active noise cancellation headphones, but now they are. Upgrading is, is a fact of uh, modern technological life. It's the idea that you release an MVP first and you add features to it as its product lifecycle goes on is pretty important. And it's, it's what you need to do to be competitive. And blockchain couldn't really do that until we figured out how to get a, a platform neutral language that encoded the bits of the blockchain that we thought were most important to upgrade. And that's what WebAssembly does. So WebAssembly is basically our uh, language by which we define how a blockchain should work. We define how it should process transactions, how it should process blocks, and which consensus algorithm it should use. And using WebAssembly, we can then just roll out a new WebAssembly blog, which is completely platform neutral. It's, it's nicely designed, so it's actually fairly optimizable you can sort of compile it or transcompile it onto a native instruction set for relatively sort of decent um, performance. And it allows us basically to roll out upgrades on the chain. And the nice thing is because the upgrades are determined by on-chain mechanisms, we can use all sorts of interesting and cryptographic uh, algorithms in order to determine when an upgrade should happen. 
And so we can do things like implement all sorts of interesting governance and, and potentially futaki algorithms for that. And it also has it has memory constraints too. Right? You can you can control the memory on it, unlike, for example, JavaScript, right? Yeah, it's got a the general architecture of, of WebAssembly is pretty decent for when you want to do a consensus um, algorithms specifically. So consensus algorithms, basically, you know, when you need all executions of it on all platforms, on all instances to always come to the same uh, result. And if you remove basically the floating point instructions from the WebAssembly spec, then you end up at something that is that can be made sort of consensus proof. It, it can be, uh, you have something that no matter how the program is executed on, on what platform, on what computer, under which WebAssembly, as long as it's a standard uh, binding WebAssembly implementation, you will end up with the same result. And yeah, the memory, so the aspects of the environment that control the memory are, are a part of that. You can basically sort of ensure that it only allocates a certain amount of memory and it can't use anything beyond that. And you get all sorts of traps. If, uh, well, you get a trap if, if, if it tries to sort of access something that you don't want. To wrap us up, What's the hardest part of starting a company in the space of cryptocurrency technology? It's convincing people that you're not just the hype, I guess. <laughs> like it's the, the problem is with, with, with hype cycle, I mean, it draws a lot of attention into the industry as a whole. It draws a bunch of money into the industry as a whole. But it becomes almost like a popularity contest. People start to forget to look a little deeper beyond what they see to see whether the true value is really being created here or whether it's just, you know, a, a bunch of uh, very effective communicators um, spreading some dreams about what it is that, that they may or may not hope to be producing. And because of that, it's actually kind of difficult as a company that's busy building stuff, that's dedicating its resources to building stuff to get this, the level of attention beyond others and sort of have its signal amplified beyond the noise. And I'd say that as much as anything else is, is a pretty big problem for starting up. Well, Gavin, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And I know we spent a lot of time talking about the supply chain example, but I think the reason I wanted to go deep on that is because your company is, the things that you're focused on are about this idea, this vision for the, so, for, so first of all, I completely agree with everything you said about it being so early that we really don't know how this space is going to evolve. But I, I think your thesis around the idea that we're going to have a lot of blockchains, it's not necessarily all going to be stuff that's built on top of Ethereum or built on top of Bitcoin. It could be, disjoint and distributed and we want these things to be interoperable we want them to play nice with each other we want to have some standards around that and it is not easy to assemble the plane while you're you know falling down from the cliff in the middle of a hurricane i mean if people talk about you know people talk about starting a startup is you're you know you're assembling a plane while you're falling off a cliff and that's hard enough but the blockchain space is, is completely up in the air it's like nobody knows what's going to happen so you're also in a hurricane and so it's like there's so much movement it's really hard to have a strong thesis about 
I mean, about anything. You can have a strong thesis about some things like, yeah, you know, how do you mediate trust in a world where we're relying on centralized organizations? How do you change things so that it can be trustless? But that's about all we really know. Like we have kind of a bright vision for the future, but we just don't know what the implementation is going to look like. And so I I appreciate you taking the time to really break down uh, some examples of why you might want another blockchain. But you also have the humility that you're not really sure that this is how things are going to work out. But anyway, I'm fascinated with your company. I'm fascinated with the work that you do. And I look forward to covering it more in the future as this stuff makes its way into the market. Cool. Cheers, Jeff. Okay. Thank you, Gavin. Good talking to you. Likewise. Thanks. Wow.